You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming here tonight. Hope you're getting comfy, find a nice spot. Uh, We are hopefully going to have a very beautiful evening. I am with some of my favourite people on the planet. That's what happens when you give me the opportunity to control an event. I invite cool people that I like. (laughs) And so um, I'm really looking forward to speaking with them all. Uh, I hope you are too. We've actually set up a Q&A microphone so that if you have any questions for anyone tonight, you can just stand up in a line and we'll advise you of when the time is for that and uh, you can feel free to ask whatever you like. So um, to give a bit of background as to who I am, who these people are and why we're here tonight, uh, my name's Crystal Napoli. I am a Gamilaroi astrophysicist, uh, soon to be author um, in two months. And I am, I'm very passionate about Aboriginal sciences and in particular Aboriginal astronomy probably pretty obvious, an astrophysicist, Aboriginal woman, yes, I'm obsessed with this space. And so uh, I've done a number of uh, roles in my life over the last few years engaging with Aboriginal science. I've created courses for uh, universities and high schools to engage with content that is accurate and respectful. I have um, helped curate a public, uh, their, their website so that tertiary institutions that are accurate and that are culturally respectful essentially. And through my uh, curation of this website, I became aware of more fields outside of astronomy where deadly people are doing really incredible research, have incredible knowledge that I wanted to learn a lot more about. And so this is uh, sort of what's motivated a lot of my uh, engagement with people from other spaces. And so the people that I have here tonight, I have Wiradjuri astrophysicist and social media star, (laughs) Kirsten Banks. I have Barkindji researcher and curator, Zeta Cumston. And look, I'll give extended introductions soon. We're going to dive into all your work and why you should be interested about it. And I have Marawari warrior, William Stevens, who I can't really explain Willie in one sentence because he's done everything. And somehow after knowing him for years and we have a chat, I find out about a new role that he's had that is just marvellous. So when it comes to um, animal, plant knowledge, sky knowledge, everything, like Willie's just a walking encyclopedia and it intimidates me, but look, we'll, we'll open the book tonight and we'll, <laughs> we'll find about a bit out a bit more. So uh, I wanted to now switch to all of you, just to give you an opportunity to speak for a few minutes to explain, you know, who you are, what, what you do, why you do it, and, you know, if you have anything you want to plug at the moment, because there are some things going on. So I might just start with you, Kirsten, if you're happy to 
have an introduction. Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Kirsten Banks, uh, aka Astro Kirsten. Uh, I love talking since I was a very young girl. I actually wanted to, still don't know how I knew that word from the age of three or four years old, but apparently I did. Uh, but in high school, my science teachers took my entire year group on an excursion to go see a documentary about the Hubble Space Telescope. And ever since seeing those incredible photos of space and the universe, I was just absolutely hooked on our mysterious world that we live in. Uh, and I'm very, very privileged to be able to study that as part of a PhD at the moment at the University of New South Wales. Uh, my re field of research is a combination of galactic archaeology and astroseismology, all things you'd think would happen in the ground, but we do them up there, which is kind of cool, all from the comfort of my own home with a very fluffy uh, dressing gown on at in, during the night is fantastic. Uh, and like I said before, I love talking about space as well. I am on social media as Astro Kirsten on Twitter and TikTok. Uh, if you've seen some of my videos, you can see that I like to use very accessible words such as yeet favorite word in the entire English vocabulary. Uh, and what I love to do is make space and science accessible to as many people as possible because everyone deserves a chance and the excitement to learn about space and have fun while doing that. So that's me. Beautiful. All right, uh, Zena, would you like to give us a spiel? Yes, so um, my name's Zena. Um, I'm a Barkindji woman and um, my family are from Western New South Wales, but I've been living in Melbourne for a long time. Um, I don't actually have a science background, but I'm kind of, I've ended to me because I've had lotling. And I think that the realm of science is an area that needs a lot more storytelling. Um, and, you know, all the people who are involved in um, Aboriginal astronomy who are here tonight and here tonight, um, I think would agree that it's a real way of being able to communicate um, Aboriginal knowledge in the way that it should be communicated, Indigenous knowledge, Torres Strait Islander knowledge. We so often um, engage with ideas around um, what Indigenous science is, but we don't actually engage in the pedagogy, like the way that it's done. And I think that we lose a lot of the effectiveness of our knowledge when we don't sort of really champion our ways of doing and storytelling is important for that. So. Um, I guess I've started writing the last few years and I'm really enjoying it. Um, and I've been doing plant research, so looking at uh, the way that we, um, as Indigenous peoples of Australia, have used plants for medicines, technologies, um, nutrition, um, because plants really are the basis of the reason why uh, we've been able to be here for the longest time imaginable, because I just really see that as the backbone um, to everything that we've needed to survive and to thrive and to innovate. Uh, and at the moment, I'm curating a show. Um, oh, I've curated a show that's on at Melbourne Uni called Emu Sky. Um, and I did that because, again, I wanted to communicate with a large audience about um, the knowledge that we have of country. Um, but mo most importantly, I just wanted to, like, make a massive disruption in the relentlessly colonial world that is, you know, the university campus. Um, and that's on at the moment. If you want to go and see it, um, there's a website. You just look up Emu Sky. Uh, yeah, yabba everyone. My name's Willie and uh, from Warriors, it's back of Burke. Literally 10 minutes north of Burke. If no one knows where Burke's is, Dubbo, maybe a bit more familiar. Uh, about four hours northwest. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's 50 degrees every day out there. It's not fun at all. Um, luckily, I grew up in Newcastle most of my life, right next to the beaches. Uh, in a wobble country. 
And um, I've, I've done a few uh, different things in my life, as uh, Crystal has uh, mentioned. Um, uh, I'll just start with the only the current ones that I'm doing, uh, which is uh, streamer. So I stream uh, video games uh, during the evening and during the day on weekends. Um, and I also work at TAFE, New South Wales, as an Aboriginal support officer, helping uh, Aboriginal students get past their courses uh, with whatever needs they need. It can be up tutorial support or just someone just to listen to them. Uh, but uh, I'm the guy that figures out what the problem is and try to solve it. Uh, and I also am a mixed martial artist focusing on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo uh, and also a coach for an MMA fighter as well. There's a bit of a bag of things out there. But uh, in the sp space that we're probably talking about mostly tonight is uh, Aboriginal astronomy. Uh, I was a tour guide for quite a few years, um, teaching Aboriginal culture and within certain uh, areas of focus. So one focus on history, uh, major characters like Arabanu and Benelong and stuff and all the events leading up to today's uh, history. Uh, then also working at Taronga Zoo, uh, teaching Aboriginal culture but focusing on animals and plants. Um, and that can just be yarning about uh, hunting techniques or what... Um, what sauce goes well with kangaroo. Um, so, and, uh, some people didn't really like hearing some of the hunting things because they want to hear more about how cute the animals are and stuff. But uh, that's our culture. It's our, what we did. And uh, I also then decided to... Uh, got hit up by the manager at the City Observatory uh, to do a program called Dreamtime Astronomy where it was abri teaching Aboriginal astronomy. And the program was trying to tell stories that would uh, reflect the sky and uh, with a lot of cool technology like a planetarium and stuff that I got to mess around with, which is where me and Kirsten met as well. So we did a lot of programs together and smashed it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, before that, uh, before the, all the tour guiding stuff, I was also a zookeeper for a few years in Newcastle and Tronga Zoo as well. Just a yeah, dump. <laughs> Thank you. So you see what I mean though, right? <laughs> um, so I guess I'm going to start with just some questions about like prompting you to speak about some areas that I know that you're all really well versed in and uh, could really share something with people here tonight because I've been a lot more about different types of Aboriginal. I've... <sighs> I, I guess I, I've, I've seen that uh, when we talk about it with a lot of other people, that it has a similar response. And I wanted to get across tonight talking about how we, you know, we're, we're, doing, we're doing a few things to our environment that are harsh, right? Uh, we, we tend to, for example, right, we're living in a metro space at the moment. We're in Melbourne. And I find that a lot of people sort of forget that right now we're actually on country. When we talk about healing country, for example, last year, it's a popular topic, but it seemed like people sort of forget that we were referring as well to the spaces that we're in right now and the things that we can do. And so this sort of brings me actually to a question I wanted to ask you, Zena, and I know we've talked about it before, but um, you are so knowledgeable when it comes to native plants and also keeping in mind that we're living in these urban areas. And uh, I remember um, you've been able to sort of talk about things that people here in Melbourne would be able to do in their own 
their own uh, spaces, their own yards, that would be able to heal country and lead to a better environment. And so I was wondering if you might be able to talk about how, um, essentially how we could engage with native plants to, I guess, sort of heal the spaces around us. Um, yeah, I guess the thing that I'd point people towards is a plant booklet that I made, um, mainly for young people and families um, to learn about Indigenous plant use. It's very kind of simple, it's not complex, um, but it's available online and it's free. Um, so you can really easily download it. But the reason why I made that booklet is I saw that um, especially young people were really, really um, engaged with um, traditional knowledge of country through plant, of ideas, through teaching about plants. Um, so that's why I made that booklet. But um, a lot of people have gotten back to me and said that they've found it very useful in their own gardens to think about what they might plant. And I'm a big believer in... Um, you know, that's the small things that we can all do. And I know a lot of people think that um, little things don't really count and that it has to just be massive structural change. Um, I agree with that also. There's so many things that, you know, need to have a massive, massive change. But I, I also see that the little things add up a lot, especially when it comes to the environment. We're stressing our environment across so many different um, realms at the moment. And it's you know, anything that you can do that takes the stress away or provides some kind of, um, I guess, relief for all of the living things around us is really important. And I think more and more people were realising that non-Indigenous plants, um, you know, and I love all plants, but non-Indigenous plants do take a lot of water. Um, and I really actually, I don't love all plants. I absolutely hate lawn. Um, yeah, because it has almost no biodiversity value. It is really hungry for water. People are obsessed with how it looks, so they start doing stupid things like getting out leaf blowers and getting rid of the tiny weeds that are the only thing that actually has any biodiversity value sort of within them. Um, so I think there's lots of tweaks that we can do um, in our own communities. And I was, I've been really lucky to work for a, um, an entity called the Clean Air Urban Landscapes Hub. Um, the last... I worked there for around four years as a research fellow, really knowledgeable um, in all and got to sort of yarn with them the more I realised that actually the small things are really important because in our yards, if we have areas that are almost like little oases for insects and other small animals, it means that they can do things like get outside um, the gene pool they're kind of in to reproduce in a way that's much more viable. And so if you do have, um, you know, if you, for example choose to dig up your, um, the strip on the kerb of my brain's gone, nature strip, yeah, and put grasses and native flowers and things which I'm noticing people are starting to do, it actually is a massive boon for biodiversity because it's the little things that make everything tick. Um, I love going out in my garden and I've really noticed that uh, I do grow a lot of veggies um, and things that aren't Indigenous plants but I notice that when I'm out there and I get to have a moment of stillness while I'm watering or really a, a, just a moment to really watch, all of the most interesting insects seem to be around my Indigenous plants. And I just realised that if we're thinking about um, looking after country, it has to be holistic and we have to think about all the things and how they fit together. And so I'm just always thinking about the little things as much as I can, the little insects and you know, lizards and things that I can help, even though I've got a tiny little yard and it was mostly concrete when I moved in. Um, I, think I, I think I'm think i doing my bit. I feel good when I go out there. I see a lot of movement. And I've even seen um, 
blue-banded bees, which is really exciting um, because they're native bees and they're really good looking and you don't see them very often. So yeah, I, I know that they weren't there before and they are now. And we're talking about, uh, we know to look for your booklet, which is incredibly informative and just amazing. It's, uh, it's like a, <laughs> just a, it's so extensive, which I think is what just shocks me of like all the different plants that are native that are here that we could engage with. But I was wondering if there was anything that you would say that people here should actually be taking into consideration before just opting to start putting native plants into their yard. Yeah, well, I guess everyone's got different situations as well. So a lot of people, like, this is the first time that I've had an opportunity to have a garden in my life. And, yeah, it was mainly concrete, but we kind of dug bits up and put beds in. If you don't have a garden and you still want to do things, um, I think giving plants and learning to propagate plants is an awesome thing to do because we're all buying too much and we all want to give gifts to our friends and family. But I think if we learn to propagate, it's just such an amazing feeling um, just the abundance you feel coming out of your body almost when you see like the roots growing and stuff. And you think, oh my God, I did that. It's so great. Um, so I think learning to propagate plants is an awesome one if you don't have your own garden because you can do it on your windowsill um, and then give them to other people and you can teach other people how to propagate also. Um, but if you do have a garden, if there's any small area where you can get um, a mob of grasses and remembering that Indigenous plants don't do very well in monocultures a lot of the time, so it's really great to kind of mix it up and see what has a relationship with each other. Um, but if you have a little area, I reckon grasses are one of the best um, things that you can plant in terms of bang for your buck, what they do for insects and, and birds and things. And if you have like a slightly bigger area, it's always good to have like bottom layer, mid layer, bigger layer. So um, I've bought these huge pots and I've put, um, should, um, because they're not in the ground, and things coming now to pick scale and stuff off them. So. Um, if you do have the opportunity to go sort of upper, mid and lower, you're looking after so many different um, parts of, of biodiversity that we, we need to look after. But yeah, if you've got no other room, then grasses are definitely the best way to go. Excellent. And taking into consideration other things that we experience in our day-to-day -day life that are very common in the cities but are completely abnormal are things like light pollution which uh, Kirsten, as a, an Aboriginal astronomer, I feel like you sort of have two, two perspectives, uh, or two, at least you can offer two, like two perspectives in the one about the impact of light pollution for, um, in, I guess in, from a, an astronomer point of view, but also from like a cultural heritage point of view. So I was wondering, yeah, what is, what is your take? <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> Excellent it's, take. It's the worst. <laughs> light pollution really sucks. Um, yes, it's great to be able to see at night and be safe at night to walk around and whatnot, but the, the light pollution that we experience every single day is doing so much hindrance for so many things. Both from a biodiversity point of view, animals are hugely affected by light pollution. Um, I won't go too much into that because I'm an astronomer, not a biologist, <laughs> but there are so many facets to what light pollution does as a negative impact. Um, one, the amount of stars you should be able to see in the night sky with the naked eye with no light pollution is around two and a half thousand stars. In Sydney, which is where I'm from, which I assume Melbourne would be very similar in terms of how much light pollution the cities produce, you can see that's less than 5%. It should be like for you, right? So the first time I finally saw a proper night sky was out across the Nullarbor. Um, my family and I, when I was 15, 
we did the Nellibore Golf Course. So from Sedona, South Australia to Kalgoorlie, Western Australia, you travel across and every... There's a balloon. There's a balloon. <laughs> I was just waiting for it to pop or something. <laughs> um, and across as you go on this road trip, every couple of uh, town stops along the way, there will be at least one golf hole. And halfway through our trip, we stopped at the Nellibore Roadhouse, which is a couple hundred k's north of the Bight. Um, and when we were there, this Nullarbor Roadhouse is at most five things. You've got a servo, a motel caravan park, a pub, very important, a golf hole, and a single streetlight. And the one night that we were there, the main generator, for some unknown reason, it wasn't me, turned off, and every single light in this tiny town just went out, except for that single streetlight. And the stars were so expansive. The colours in the night sky were so expansive that I, I started to cry. It was so incredible just how much you could see. And over the years of looking at the night sky and seeing more of the universe, it was honestly the shit part of the night sky. The summer night sky kind of sucks. The winter night sky, we're looking towards the centre of the Milky Way galaxy and you see so many more stars. You see the emu in the sky as well, my favourite constellation. Even the summertime sky feel incredible so much that I cried. And we don't see that in the cities. We see maybe, maybe all five stars in the Southern Cross. Just the fifth one, if you can avert your eyes a little bit. And with that, we're losing the stars, but we're also losing the culture behind it and the stories behind these constellations and the stars that we're losing. Um, there are six stars now that are named and given global recognition around the world by the International Astronomical Union, and a lot of them you can't see with the naked eye. Seven. Thank you, Dwight. It's seven now, which is incredible. Um, and some of them you, I can't even find in the night sky because of all the light pollution. And it's because of this we're losing, we're losing culture in that way and it's a really devastating thing that we can't see them as well as we can as we used to in these beautiful countries that we live in now. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. The stars in the sky, particularly when it comes to Indigenous astronomy, but especially other Indigenous knowledge systems, you tend to find that quite a lot of the time stars are a really important reference point for a lot of the stories. And so it's... To, to me, it's sort of, it's like hiding essentially our, our library. You're using these, these stars, they're like books, they uh, help you essentially unlock uh, a bit of knowledge and uh, losing that is just depressing. And losing especially, not being able to see directly the fifth star of the Southern Cross when, as we've alluded to, star names, that is actually a waterman name. Globally around the world, the International Astronomical Union have given named Geenan, which is a dilly. It should be so so excited, so engaged with this, and instead we are having unnecessary artificial light spill into our atmosphere that's hiding it, which just seems, it just seems shameful. There is an advantage, though, yes? because of the light pollution. It gets right. people out of the city and go country. <laughs> so, just saying, yeah, go over the mountains and that, you'll have no light pollution, and you can see it all, or most of it. So, uh... Um, now you've got my attention, so <laughs> teachers looking at you. Uh, Willie, you've, you've worked in the space of Indigenous astronomy for a while. Worked uh, is a weird term, I guess. You, you've lived it. Like, this is, this is cultural knowledge you're really interested in um, and uh, stuff that you've been sharing. And so there are a couple of things that I 
would like to highlight about the work that you've done, and you can probably guess what one of them's going to be, because uh, you yourself have done uh, a bit of research in Indigenous astronomy, particularly the Murrawari Nation, investigating oral traditions, stories, and, uh, and uh, the connection between events and spaces and names that you're around. And you ended up creating a map. So would you like to share with us in way more detail than I've just given of um, what you actually accomplished? Uh, all right. I've got a story with this. I don't know how long this is going to take, but uh, it all connects together. It all started when I was a baby. No, no not that far back. But um, uh, actually, strange enough, it actually did start with a baby. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do the fast version of this. Uh, uh, Aboriginal family, so I had to be adopted into another f Aboriginal family. So I grew up with, with Aboriginal culture, but um, the next country across, ne literally the next door neighbour. So Murawari is my bloodline, but my adopted line is uh, Gamilaroi. And growing up, uh, I grew up uh, in an Aboriginal family, but the knowledge wasn't really given that well to me. And I, whatever knowledge I did gain, it wasn't from my um, bloodline. Uh, so when I was old enough, uh, that I was 10 years old when I found out I was adopted, quite the conversation with parents. Uh, met my real mother when I was 17. Met my dad when I was 18. Uh, learned and then meeting the rest of the family as the years go by. Uh, my mother was very big on culture. My birth mother, and she's an Aboriginal artist. Uh, the tattoos, the, all the tattoos I've got, that's, this is all her artwork. So, wear it proudly. Uh, so, as I was learning where my bloodline, uh, where I'm from, and all my family and all that kind of stuff, just kept, made that um, uh, interest even better. So, I started going out and doing my own research and talking to people. I went up uh, I'm from Sydney right now, and I went all the way down to Canberra, oh, up to Canberra from here, but um, to Canberra Library, uh, the Aboriginal Library, IATSIS, and I did a lot of research who passed away in the nature of our culture, and he saw a solution to keep our culture, to keep our culture, our knowledge uh, going, and that's by recording it. And his story is amazing. If you ever um, get a chance to get a hold of his books, um, is, I believe it's called The Two Worlds of Jimmy Barker, and he's got two footprints, one uh, green and one white. Um, and he explained um, as he was growing up that he grew up learning all the stories as an Aboriginal person. And he, um, as he got older, he started recording it on little cassettes and that was sent to the library, the IATSIS library. And it's all recorded there. So I spent quite a bit of time listening to the tapes, uh, learning the language, found it, finding a dictionary, looking, finding all these cool um, things that all re revolved around Murawari. And I had all this uh, knowledge built up in my head. And as I was saying with my career before that... I was teaching Aboriginal culture through history and then through animals and then through astronomy. Uh, 
I literally had was te- teaching the stories that I learned from uh, old Jimmy Barker. Um, and I then uh, met a fellow called Dwayne Harmaker. And from there, it just connections from all these different people that um, I built up more knowledge and connecting to a fellow called Bob Fuller. who made And there was a couple of stories that actually I found connecting that from... Gamilaroi and Murawari, even some star lines uh, that cross over into multiple countries. And this is where, uh, or with Jimmy Barker's knowledge, he also ha- had a map made. And it was just a just an outline of the country itself. But as he was describing Murawari in its whole, he did mention eight clans within that country. And it wasn't drawn up on a map or anything like that, but he described where these uh, clans were. And through that knowledge, I got uh, a bit of help with someone with a a bit more computer technology than me, and I hand-drew where I thought that these um, clans were perfectly located. And then I took that map to community out Murawari Way and handed it to the elders and they came back and they said they loved it. They've never seen something like it before and they actually want to use it for educational purposes now. So we just it's all about, um, it looks all pretty in that now, but it's just got to be a little touches to finalise it and it's going to be put out there to teach all the young fellas that are Murawari and whoever else wants to learn all that culture out there. And hopefully I want it to be put on like national parks, uh, like signs and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, uh, but it, it has helped me, Camilleroy, uh, and, and it just keeps building up from there. So it's just the beginning really, the, the creation of the map. Excellent. Uh, there's a perspective that, you know, I would have loved to have incorporated tonight and I think it's still worth mentioning, even though I'm not an expert in this area, I don't believe any of us sitting here are necessarily, but um, it's just talking about more, it'll lead into something after it, okay? It all has this all has a plan in my mind and you'll see it eventually. Uh, but I wanted to highlight the importance of engaging with traditional, uh, uh, I guess, I'll just jump to the case. Uh, Traditional fire management methods, I think they're really fascinating. Um, and I can actually plug a really excellent book about it that I didn't write, but um, mine's coming next, uh, which is called Country, uh, Future Fire, Future Farming by Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe. And I found it really interesting because I know that we grow up and we hear a lot about how we have devastating bushfires. And like, I grew up in country Victoria. I remember the Black Saturday bushfires. I was caught out in really rural areas near them. It was quite terrifying to try and get home. And it feels like we, we just go through these cycles all the time. We had the recent 2020 Black, um, Black Summer bushfires. Like, how terrible and terrifying is that? And we talk about how we should be burning off more and engaging with Indigenous elders. And it's, it's a conversation that's long overdue, but it's also way more complex than most people are aware. It's also... Essentially, um, I'm talking about burning off, and it feels like this sort of brutal way of just getting rid of grass and ensuring that it won't burn later. And through reading books like these, from hearing perspectives from um, what actually fire management practices are, it's something that we should be taught, like that essentially fire is our friend. 
And so there's just, a, I guess, like a few things tonight that I think are worth highlighting because there are a number of different uh, Indigenous knowledge systems, Indigenous perspectives that are so worth engaging with that we really should be engaging with, that we shouldn't have to try and convince people that they're worth engaging with. Um, but also, it's not as simple as that. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you, Zena, not to put you on the spot, uh, there's a lot of things that we should be engaging with. There's knowledge that would be a great benefit to this entire continent if we were uh, listening to. But what should we be considering when we actually try and work with community? Because I know we have this long history in Australia of pillaging knowledge, taking away and with nothing in return. And we're talking tonight trying to get people to think about Indigenous perspectives and that you should be engaging with them. But how can we do it authentically where we're once again not just pillaging knowledge from community? Yeah, that's a big question, um, Crystal, but one that I think, yeah, we have to think about more and more because as we're facing more, um, I guess, yeah, a, a more of an environmental crisis, feels like by the month, um, people are starting to sort of wake up to the fact that there's a whole arsenal of tools that we haven't activated. Um, but I do hear... Um, I guess in the subtext of a lot of the, the many conversations that are going on about the incorporation of um, Indigenous knowledge in, in the arsenal that we need to kind of combat um, what's coming at us, almost an idea that um, I guess it can, it's something that can kind of just be taken and applied and we kind of need this idea that emanates and I think that that's where a lot of the projects and... Um, ideas that people have tried really hard to implement have kind of gone wrong in that uh, really just like cultural fire, all of the knowledge that's held by communities is for the specific country that they are living on and probably, you know, moving into their traversal range. So the societies around them, they also have kinship ties with and um, ancestral connection. Um, so I think that the main thing that I sort of want to see shift in this area so that we can unlock what's needed is the empowerment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to actually lead a lot of the actions that are needed. So this is happening um, a fair bit in lots of different ways across Australia, but I think um, a lot of the leaders that I really respect who, who speak about stuff, quite a few of them have used the analogy of we've, we're kind of in the car, but we're in the back seat and the car's sometimes going the right way, but really if we, we really want to unlock what we've got and the potential of all of the knowledge um, from such a long period of time of country that's holistic and looks at the cultural landscape and everything within it, we really need to be in the driver's seat. And there's still really, um, I think, parochial practices going on across all, um, you know, all aspects of, of the world we live in today. Um, I really noticed it at the university. I definitely notice it when, for example, a conversation article, which is a call to arms um, about how we can empower people. Um, one just came out in Jane Stephen Van Leeuwen. I actually find it very useful to look at the comments because it helps me sometimes with my frustration um, because I actually understand the mindset of, of where some of the problems are coming from. But a lot of the comments were saying things, and this happens a lot, um, what are they talking about? This is racist, as if Aboriginal people are the only ones that can have this knowledge. They just need to hand it over. Most of it's lost anyway. Um, it, it's really disturbing, but I do think that, that, that it's not just the keyboard warriors and the whack jobs. I do think that there's an idea that knowledge is lost, but we also haven't 
put enough resources into shining the light in lots of areas. And especially in the southeast of Australia, because I'm a southeastern Aboriginal woman, I do really notice um, that we are considered lesser in some ways. Um, and I hear that story all the time when I speak to researchers and the idea that if you want authentic Aboriginal knowledge, you need to go up north. And certainly people up north um, have experienced colonisation in a different way in many areas, not all. Um, there is a different situation in some places, but we, we actually need to start shining the light in places where it hasn't been shone because knowledge is not lost. I really, really, truly believe that with all of my heart because every time I see someone shine a light, new things come up. And then you get an elder talking about something that they hadn't had the impetus to talk about because they've seen that plant or someone's brought up a story that interconnects with their country. It's so rich what we, what we have got at our disposal and the only way that we are going to be able to access that richness is by to hold it, to drive it, practices that we have today because holistic practices are what we need. We can't keep putting out spot fires. Yeah, excellent, very powerful response. Uh, I'm going to change the topic a bit now. Uh, so I'm giving you warnings so you don't have like whiplash, but it's it's similar. It's about communicating information. And so Kirsten, you're clearly very passionate about making science accessible. And uh, I wanted to, to see uh, essentially why you chose to go so, I guess like so dedicatedly online. is uh, what, what strength do you think there is in essentially, I guess, communicating via these new social media avenues? So the reason why I went really hard on social media, especially starting in 2020, was because I couldn't do my science communication the way I used to by going into schools, doing amazing public events like this where I can actually see faces, which is incredible. Thank you all for being here, by the way. Um, I couldn't do that anymore because we were all shut down in our homes, not going anywhere, and... I really need to talk about space. I had this itch that couldn't be scratched and I'm like, oh no, what do I do now? But then my partner, Jamie, he said to me, oh, there's this new app, TikTok. Have you heard of it, Kirsten? It's going really big at the moment. You should join it. And I'm like, all right, yeah, let's give it a go. Uh, and then when I joined TikTok and saw that it was a huge platform getting a lot of traction, Noticing that there was not a lot of science content on the platform, I thought I science communication and people are. People aren't really watching TV anymore. People aren't really listening to radio anymore. And I'm sure people still are, but <laughs> except for, of course, Indigenous It's the only show that they tune into, yes. <laughs> but there's just this huge mass of people who are on TikTok watching. There are billions of people on that platform. So to go where the people are, I think that's a really important thing when it comes to science communication. Don't expect people to come to you. Go to where they are. Uh, and from that, yeah, people wanted to learn about space. And I don't know where I'm going with this. What was the question again? No, you've, you've done excellently, especially like that, that uh, perspective of go to where people are. And I guess I feel like that happens pretty often in science that we leave people behind. I mean, how in, inaccessible are academic journals to the greater public? It's like, cool, if you're a uni student, you get to read these things, but otherwise it's, it tends to be quite gatekept. There's quite a funny meme, and I don't know if it's actually real or not, but at least it's a meme. It's, it's um, this paper about the inaccessibility of science. 
And it's like, pay $8 to read this journal article. It, yeah, it, 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 it illustrates the point pretty well. So I, I, I love that. I can see, um, I think that we need to adapt to, uh, we need to keep adapting actually in general to like the way that we communicate. We can't just sort of, uh, as you said, hope that people approach us. Need to go to where they are and we've got to get those Gen Zers because they're the future and uh, they care about this stuff. So we've got to, we've got to in, um, enable them, <laughs> arm them, send them out. So interesting. And a variety of different roles in your life. And I mean, today we were walking on my university campus and he was just straight away like, mm, yep, these are very different trees from what you get from where I come from. He's like, back in New South Wales, I can name every eucalyptus tree that I see. <laughs> but this, I don't know this. And so um, I was wondering if you could uh, go back to your, your park ranger days, pretend that we're like on a tour with you and imagine that you were seeing the coolest thing that you used to ever see on your tours and... Tell us about it. Oh, cool. Hey, look, it's an animal, it's a plant, it's okay. interesting, cultural knowledge, whatever you think is something that you would love to get across to people. Just pretend that we're there with you. All right. Uh, I haven't done an animal encounter in a while. Do you want to pretend to be my koala? I can try. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't do much, right? Pretty much. I eat eucalyptus I... leaves. I'm sort of out of it most of the time, napping. The males do smell, though. Do you want me to fall from a tree? Yeah. Well, I'm a female, so it works pretty well. It does. I don't That's stink. why we always grab the females out, because they're not going to deter the people away. And if you smell like another male koala, that male's going to attack you. So, yeah. I'm surprised that females are unproblematic. Continue. Right. <laughs> is, uh, is there an animal, that an Australian animal, that anyone wants to hear about? Make it interesting, I guess. Kangaroo? kangaroo? Which one? Grey, red, <laughs> tree? Canberra. I don't think there's red kangaroos down there, but grey kangaroos. All right. Did you know that? <laughs> um, in my language, is called... There are... Does anyone actually know how many kangaroos there actually are? Like different species in Australia? No. I'm pretty sure that there's four, all right, but there's also a tree kangaroo as well. And there's, I believe, two species of tree kangaroos. And yes, they do live right up the tops of the trees in rainforests in Queensland. Much like the cassowaries, that's where the only places you'll find cassowaries. Uh, emus, you'll find them everywhere out um, past... I keep thinking we're in Sydney, because usually I've got a good reference, like the Blue Mountains, which is always west. So, uh, hey, I said take us there. If we're in Sydney, we're in Sydney. Oh, sweet. All right. We're in Sydney right now, guys. Um, so you go look to, if you look to your right, uh, oh, my right, your left, uh, the Blue Mountains past there, is the, your, you'll get plenty of emus out there. And uh, there was a bit of a history with the uh, emus uh, called the Emu Wars, if anyone's ever heard of the e Emu Wars. Yeah, got a couple of nods. For those who don't, it was literally the Australian government against emus and the Australian government lost <laughs> because it rained. The water clogged their guns and they couldn't shoot them, so the emus reigned supreme. That's literally... It, it, look it up if you don't believe me. It's there. Uh, but with the kangaroos as well, one of the... I've always found that was interesting with kangaroos is... Um, how they, there's so many of them. And the cool thing that I found with their reproductive system is that you will have a full on the outside 
You'd also have a a fetus, I guess, on the uh, in like on pause. So if anything happened to one of the joeys, they could automatically start up the one that's already in their belly, and then they just make another one, and then they do the deed. They've got another one in there, just waiting to start up. And that's when it usually happens when the joey has left the pouch and moved on. Or if an accident happens and the joey dies, they can keep going. So that's why there's so many kangaroos. And no matter how many you run over, we will, we're going to be the Australian government. We'll lose against them like with the emus. Yeah, so uh, what I'm taking is we should not start kangaroo war next. Pretty much. Well, yeah. I mean, I've lost a couple of cars from them. Like, I mean, they died, but so did my car. So, but uh, with, uh, if, you, if you've ever eaten kangaroo as well, um, I'm a big fan of eating kangaroo. It's the least fattiest meat and... High protein. Yeah, high protein. Those for uh, any gym goers here. Uh, but the best part is the, the tail. And what I always found really weird, whenever I went to pet shops, you'd always see kangaroo tails, like as like a, a dog chew toy or something for them to nibble on. And I was like, that's the best part to eat. Why are you giving it to the animals? Like, but it's all like dried up at that. I wouldn't eat it. But um, <laughs> uh, the last time I had a kangaroo, which was freshly uh, killed, was on a, uh, uh, a men's business. Went out bush uh, past Ningan Way, like Dubbo Way. And uh, we did a lot of um, cultural stuff. And uh, we actually hunted for kangaroo and we ate it and had the kale and juiciest part of the whole thing. So I encourage you, if you ever get the chance to have kangaroo tail, go for it. Best part. Excellent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for that because that's even better than I expected. So uh, once again, just to remind you of who's in front of us, right? Kirsten Banks is a Rajri astrophysicist. She has co-authored a paper uh, called uh, The Planets in Aboriginal Australia or Aboriginal Astronomy. It's one of those words uh, with Dr. Dwayne Harmaker who's sitting in the front row. Uh, and Zena Cumston is a Barkindji woman researcher, curator, curator of EMU Sky Exhibition, which is actually showing right now at Old Quad on University of Melbourne campus, Parkville's campus. It's amazing. It's really cool. So go check it out. I really encourage. And then... <sighs> Marawari warrior William Stevens, who has an anecdote for everything. I know that you are very engaged with cultural practices, connecting with people in your community, heading out bush, taking some logs that you probably shouldn't be taken to make sure you've got the right material for your crafts. Uh, so these are really interesting people. And so I'm going to open it up to you now that if anyone has any questions they would like to ask them, just feel free to line up behind this microphone up here. Uh, keep somewhat socially distanced. Uh, don't be shy. This is your an excellent opportunity. You can get Willie to tell you about another animal. <laughs> uh, I'm rusty. Uh, yeah, that was... I could have done better, but... Oh, uh, look, well, you can demonstrate it maybe in a sec. No, I think... It, but if there are also no questions... Say, like, a very sincere thank you so much for all coming out here tonight to support us, to listen to what everyone had to say, to enjoy the beautiful weather. I'm so glad it wasn't going to rain on us. I was getting a little nervous when I thought we had perfect weather and then the clouds were coming. Uh, but I really do appreciate it. Um, I, I might as well, while we're here, 
give a shout out once again to the, the series that I'm a part of, not because I'm a part of it, but just because it's a, a phenomenal series. Um, it's called the First Knowledge Series. It's published with Tamsin Hudson in partnership with the National Museum of Australia. And it is six books which explore different areas of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge. The first one was Songlines uh, by Lynn Kelly and Margot Neal. It was just, it's an amazing book um, and it doesn't stop there. So we had Design by Alison Page and Paul Mamot. And then we also had, as I said before, Country, Future Fire, Future Farming by Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe. The rest of the series is going to be excellent. I have a feeling the fourth book's probably going to be the best. I'm not really sure. But that's actually based on astronomy. I've written it with a fellow Gamilaroi astrophysicist. How the hell are there two of us? Um, and it's called Astronomy Sky Country, and it's available for pre-order now. It's coming out in two months. And uh, the book is essentially a perspective that we feel like only two Yinars, which are Aboriginal women, could give. Uh, it's uh, uh, a take on our personal experiences growing up, the hurdles that we experience with accessing education, the amazing things that we love about Aboriginal astronomy and some of our research experience, as well as a look to the future of the field and things to be excited about. So in general, keep an eye on that series because it's amazing. Somehow I'm a part of it. Um, yes. But do you have a question for us? Um, yes. Hi. Um, thank you for the panel. It's been really great and mainly. Um, it's with social media and the sort of quick turnaround of you know, these 30 second, one minute type of videos. And then Indigenous knowledge, like our knowledges are so um, deep and they take years and years and we don't just sort of get them from like a, a small bite. I guess I wanted to hear your reflections on that sort of tension between the way in which people consume knowledge these days as opposed to um, the way in which knowledge is hard earned for, in, for us mob. Absolutely. Um, I, what I hope to achieve with these small bites of knowledge is to start that spark to then have people then go beyond whatever this 30 to 60 second video is to then go and reach out to the people who really know this, like the back of their hand and learn from them, have a yarn over a cup of tea that's what I hope to do. And that's what Psychomall is as well, whether it be for Indigenous knowledge or science knowledge in general as well. It's creating that spark for people to then go on, be enticed by this knowledge, by this excitement of learning something new and then going forward and making those steps for themselves to continue on in that knowledge. So that's what I hope to do because 100%, 30 seconds does not do it justice for the immense amount of knowledge that we have in this country, in this land. Um, yes, that's what I hope it does. That's the intention that I have, at least, with the videos that I make. And I hope that's what other science communicators do as well, is to create that. Uh, also, while I'm here, and there is actually another book that's coming out literally in, like, the next week, uh, which Dwayne wrote, co-wrote with six elders. So six Aboriginal elders. Um, I would like to name them, but I know I'm going to probably forget some. But Uncle Gilla, Michael Anderson, uh, John Barsa, uh, Alo Tapim, um, uh, just amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders. It's a really cool book and it's going to be way more sort of scholarly and informative than what my book is. So uh, if you want to learn, uh, I guess, uh, a bit more about some of the stuff that we've alluded to tonight, that's an excellent book. I'm very excited, the fact that we have elders as a co-author, I'm just going to say it. One thing that I really don't like about academia is, once again, the pillaging. You see like a lot of resources talking about Aboriginal knowledge that 
sometimes it feels like it just glosses over the community or the people that it's coming from. One thing I've really enjoyed about the people in our uh, research group in particular, Dwayne, I'm so sorry that I'm probably making you feel very awkward right now. He's just looking away the whole time that I'm talking. Um, but one thing I like about Dwayne is he works with community and elders get that recognition in his paper as co-authors. And that's extended into this beautiful book, which is going to be essentially the culmination of those years of research and work with community. So if you can't wait till April 26th for my book, I do really encourage them both. And honestly, I think they're quite complimentary. So just going to give that one out there. Uh, would you like to ask a question? Yeah, no, awesome talk. Thanks for all of you. Um, you know, I love this idea of particularly the fire management, like applying old knowledge systems. I think it's fantastic. I'm a scientist myself and I know that like the new science and new discoveries is also like the super exciting part about it. Do you think, I mean, particularly in fire management, those new discoveries, maybe in a, not just the indigenous people, is there support for that? And maybe even other science fields, astronomy, like what's the new developments and knowledge that can be created? No, no. So I'm... No, this is probably what you're saying, but just to like get it out there as well. I know there's a common misconception that uh, knowledge is often lost or was sort of stagnant, like sort of a static. It stopped a while ago and now we're just hoping we can re-engage with the old stuff. When knowledge belongs to community and it is thriving to this day, uh, and in particular, when it comes to things like, as I discussed, like fire management practices, it's actually really specific knowledge to each country that you're on. And so I think it would be like a great benefit for uh, people in those spaces to be engaging with specific communities of the country that you're standing on to find out what they know, what they're willing to share and how they can help sort of lead in that direction. Um, I really like your question because I think it's something that like young people who are engaging with science in the way that you are um, do ask and think about. And I'm glad that people think about what else is there that um, is, is also really exciting and can be integrated? Um, and there's one project that I found really interesting um, and it was a really great paper by a woman called Georgia Ward-Fear, I think her name is, and um, she got the, the ranges that on the country that she was working on and I've just gone completely blank um, but if you look up Georgia Ward-Fear, Ward you'll, you'll find it. Um, and she did a huge research project about these goannas. And they were having lots of trouble catching the goannas. And as soon as they engaged um, with community um, and sort of got community to lead the project, and I think actually when she went to that country, she said, what do you want me to do? Because I'm an ecologist and I can do all these things. And they said, well, these goannas are really, really important to us to do with cane toads and other invasive species. That the goannas that the white researchers were um, catching were completely different in their personalities and their modus to the ones that the mob were catching. And what it was, was that mob could see so much better across the country and could identify um, those animals because they had this, um, you know, long-standing, lifelong relationship with that animal as opposed to the researchers that had just kind of come in and were kind of trying to see them, that the researchers were finding ones um, that were a bit ballsy and were already going to survive the cane toad situation or whatever the, the danger was to their continued survival, whereas the ones that mob were finding were the really shy ones who um, probably would be more, um, and I'm, I'm really probably massacring the, the story, but I just found it so interesting because through her paper, Georgia was able to show that you actually really need custodians of country to get the full story in a scientific realm because we also are engaging in science all the time because science is careful observation over time 
at its essence. Um, I mean, I think anyway. And, you know, people watching country and being so immersed in country over the longest time imaginable and passing on information um, is obviously science. It's just not the way that we kind of, a lot of people see Western science. They don't see a place for it, but and working together in reciprocity. And that's what it's all about is reciprocity, not taking, not pillaging, not thinking, oh, that's a really nice sprinkling on top of my amazing story. Actually having a deep, meaningful relationship and a respectful relationship and asking what can we do together in a way where you really mean it. Because so many communities are using new technologies now as well, like drones and all sorts of things um, to be able to strengthen the way that they're holding knowledge and transmitting it um, on country. So there's, there's so many things to be gained through continuing to ask that question that you're asking yourself. If I may add another example that is super, super cool that I learned about recently is um, in Queensland, there are some communities up there that uh, harvest spinifex grass. And spinifex grass is everywhere across Australia. It's, it's just that bushy stuff that's just everywhere. Um, and the way that they harvest it, a byproduct of this is this kind of waxy sort of resin. And within this, there are these nanofibers. And so these scientists have been working with a community to work with how they cultivate the spinifex grass to get these nanofibers to then increase the strength of different materials like uh, rubber, for PPE, um, as well as tyres and even strengthening concrete as well. And that has been as part of a cultivation with Indigenous knowledge that has been living in this land for tens of thousands of years. So cool, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for the question. Hi. Hi. Same. Problem. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, very interesting panel discussion. Thank you so much for that. Um, a bit about myself because it's related to the question that I'm going to ask. So I'm, from, I'm an international student. I'm currently I'm from Singapore. So one of the things that I'm very curious is about the Aboriginal um, culture and Aboriginal knowledge because I feel that in my home country, we always have this focus on going back to traditional cultures, going back to your roots. And, you know, having this awareness of environmentalism, which is something that traditional cultures tend to focus on focus a lot about. The issue that I, because I was wondering whether Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal knowledge can be applicable also to a country like mine, a city-state like mine, because we have completely different climates. I'm from a tropical, humid environment, whereas over here it's very temperate. You can actually have four different seasons. It's a completely different environment and we don't usually face emu wars, for example. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have this kind of like things that we deal with. But yeah, I was wondering whether, you know, Aboriginal knowledge that I learned here can transcend over to um, a, a city-state like mine, for example. Thank you. You don't have uh, emus over there, but you got the world's biggest snakes over there. So... Yeah. 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 No one else? Sorry, I kind of lost, I lost, uh, I kind of lost the question, sorry. So, the, so I was wondering whether... The, if I were to like get some knowledge of Aboriginal knowledge adapted towards my own home country. So the way you could go about that is more like, obviously like you're not going to find the, 
It's the, like the processes that you can use the same way. Uh, for uh, there's always these different numbers out there, 40,000, 100,000 years we've been here for and we've been practicing the same cultures. The way that we've survived is through trial and error. And we, through that trial and error, we became, I like to call, like, to uh, own this, the kings of sustainability. Because we didn't just grab all the apples off of one tree and then that tree eventually dies. We took some and then we moved on and took some from another tree and so on and then did a big circle around it. The same stuff can be applied for over your way. So you would, you can learn as much as you want for what, uh, what is used here, uh, but take the strategies from what you've learned and then apply it from it. Uh, a good example, there is um, a poisonous tree. Uh, I believe it's called black bean pod. Is that correct? Um, New South Wales. <laughs> so uh, it, um, it looks like giant, giant peas uh, or bean and it's got two um, giant peas in it and it's poisonous. It'll kill you. But if you get the poison out, then you can eat it safely. And that plant particularly, uh, some of the Europeans that were uh, trying to colonise the area saw some Aboriginal people eating some bread and they were starving. They asked, like, where did you get that from? And the Aboriginal person pointed to that tree. So they just grabbed, started grabbing it and making it and they didn't get the poison out because they didn't ask that. They just said, like, where did you get it from? Oh. <laughs> so... The same practice can be used for over there. If you know that a plant is poisonous and you can figure out how to get it out, get the poison out, then you should be able to make something out of it, probably eat it. Um, so that, that would be, I reckon, the best way that you can probably go about um, using same practices. For the bushfire practices, it really does depend on your environment as well yeah. because where I'm from, uh, spit effects grass as well. Um, we use that for glue, making our axes, our spearheads and stuff like that. So our grass, don't it don't get that tall, probably about this tall. Um, and that's like getting out of control. So it was very tactical on how you would actually, like I would light this up and then light it up over there. While, while this is catching on fire and growing, uh, I'm already all the way over there and lighting the fire over there. And by the time that fire comes over here and reaches this fire, they cancel each other out and it doesn't burn anymore. Yeah. So the same practices can be used like that over in, in any country in the world, but you need to know the landscape if you do start something. Also, um, Zena, I know she put your mic up before, but I didn't know. So I just wanted to add, see, that was complete English before I was just creating my own chops. Um, I just, uh, in terms of like talking about sustainability and how you can like... Uh, apply those sort of uh, values, yeah, in the country that you're living on. And you gave some examples. I just have to highlight one of my favourite examples of sustainable ways of harvesting certain resources. And so, uh, in particular, one of the ones I love is the, uh, essentially, scar trees. So, for example, there are a number of different things that you can make from trees, right? And usually we fell the tree, we chop it down and create it, make it into something. 
And there are a number of different Aboriginal practices which are able to actually harvest wood without needing to completely make a tree fall down. And it's so fascinating to me because essentially what you do is you you take the chop of the wood that you want, essentially from those upper layers, and uh, you take for what you need, usually it could be a coolerman, as big as a canoe, like any purpose, and you leave behind a scar on the tree. And what's fascinating is those scar trees are everywhere, especially where I grew up out in the country where there are an abundance of trees. You see all these trees with these massive sort of scars that have just been taken out. And it's such an ingenious way of engaging with that resource. And I think that's worth highlighting too. So there's just different sort of values and uh, methods essentially that you could find inspiration from that could definitely transcend waters even if your landscape is different from ours. Thank you for the question. Very good. All right, so... Yes, absolutely, for you, yes. Um, so, my name's Andrew. Um, <laughs> nice to meet you. Mike, essentially. No, it's all right, I can talk. I don't really know how to um, really ask this question, but I, I suppose I can kind of phrase it in a way that, that works. Um, as, a, um, per some, as an Aboriginal person who's actively working in um, the field of STEM at the moment, I've noticed that it's um, STEM in general, science, technology, um, science, technology engineer, engineering, mathematics, really struggles to attract um, uh, young Aboriginal people into, into this field like that you guys all study and that I study or work in. What, what, is, what, what are some strategies that we can use to bridge that, that gap, that, that, that history of, of, of um, scientific taking and pillaging and, and oppression and eugenics and all of these complicated subjects um, acknowledge those subjects, but make the, um, but also allow Aboriginal people to feel more comfortable moving into these spaces. Like, what, has, what can we do as Aboriginal people, and what can our, and how can um, our white allies also, um, uh, or non-white allies, help us to, to bridge that gap or um, uh, encourage more people into that space? I mean, there's a little bit of context. I was listening to Bianca Hunt talk today about her experience in in the business sector and. Um, and how, she, how later she fell into working in um, uh, creative spaces and she realised that she was amongst a, a bunch of friends and, and she, she realised that none of them actually had any representation. Um, uh, so, like, I, I don't know. I don't, it's a hard question to ask. I don't really know how to... What do you guys reckon? I'll, I'll put it out to you guys. It's such a good question because yeah, I, it yeah. hits me, like, really close to home. <coughs> uh, well, uh, engineering. Uh, uh, could be an example. And uh, you can try and grab an idea that is culturally sound. So making a bark canoe or a dugout canoe, for example, and you could go through, um, you could make a program that is going to teach Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people uh, and include everyone in making that canoe. And at the same time, you could be teaching the engineering uh, stuff about how the boat floats and how you don't want it to be too heavy or if you get the bark, um, that you, uh, how you're going to bend the wood and or how you're going to dig the tree out. Um, but it all... You just need to find what aspects and a bit of creativity as well as to how you can bring it back to culture. If you've... And if you don't have any ideas as well, just start asking around community. And then they might, someone might tell you a cool idea and then you build on that stuff. Um, another one like science, um, you could get into like the biology and um, 
you could go into how though the spit effects grass with all the microfibers and stuff. What's so important about it? Um, how to make the glue? How we actually um, made the um, uh, the hardened stuff? What to mix? mix it up with to make a, that spearhead so strong and stuff. And what wood to use as well, light wood, heavy wood, strong wood. But it's, you just have, or you're going to attract, well, I've never made a canoe before and I'm, it's in the course that I'm doing. Like, yeah, yeah, just got to stick it out for six months or whatever when the program happens or you can have it every couple of months. To, but it's all about also bringing community in as well because they, they're the knowledge holders. They're the ones that you have to engage and they're going to teach how to actually make the stuff as well. So and there's some ideas there. For some context as well because I have to. Uh, so you're talking about incorporating Indigenous perspectives and um, especially community members into the classroom. It makes it a more welcoming environment. I, no, I'm just, I just want to point out Andrew Giles is actually the coordinator of um, the Indigenous Science course at Monash University, which is doing just that. And I think that's a really good point because it's, I, I, I do find it funny that we sort of um, have to have a separate course for Indigenous science even, you know, uh, there, uh, in, every, in every single subject at Monash, there's some sort of cultural link that could be made or any university, I'm not calling out only, my university did a good job. I'm not calling them out for making progress, okay? Um, but that would I absolutely make an environment way more welcoming because STEM, you know, like, uh, f for example, sorry, because this is an impossible, I'm not going to answer this even uh, further than this, but I just wanted to highlight another hurdle people might not consider. But when we try and engage with science and even with Indigenous science, I've, for one, the reason I relate to your, your question so much, not just from being an, an Aboriginal science student and experiencing that, but even from writing the book that we've been writing, I want to talk about Aboriginal science, and yet we have uh, a couple centuries of people writing about these topics that if I nowadays wanted, had to force my beautiful eyes to read, uh, horrifically racist. You wouldn't believe it. Like, it's not just me going, this is a little insensitive, but just like horrifically racist ways. And the thing is, you can't easily erase that. If I want to engage with that knowledge, unfortunately, those resources are still there and they tend to be referenced quite a lot. And that's really harmful. And I can see why, given the history of how science has been conducted, how research has been conducted with community, that institutions like universities don't immediately seem like the most warming, engaging, culturally safe place for us to be. So that's just something else to consider. And that's also why we created that ACDS resource because that's a massive hurdle and that's so hard to undo that, that decolonizing of the resources for one. We, we're sort of forced to engage often with stuff like that. So. Uh, can I also add as well, because working at TAFE, New South Wales, and we've got several pools of funding to, to use to help programs enhance them and that. And there is a, a, a source of funding that with outlines of what they expect to be used for as well. And uh, we can make whatever it clings to a course that is already... So let's say we're going to do um, mentoring, as Cert 3 and mentoring, and we can add this pool of funding as a, se as, as a second course. And with that funding, we can do some kind of program with mentoring and culturally sound. So we can get hire an Aboriginal elder to come in and take them out into the bush on a natural park and everything like that. So, but that's just a bit of an example there. 
One thing that I'd definitely add, and I take my hat off to you, the work that you're doing is amazing, and it's, I know how hard people work when they're often one of only one or two Aboriginal people, one, yep. Um, so, yeah, good on you, and I think it's really wonderful. And um, I guess you've probably already thought of this, but for myself, working in the area of STEM, especially as a like an Aboriginal woman who doesn't have a science background, um, one thing that I really realised was the only thing that could keep me and community safe was actually indigenising the university space. And sometimes they kick and scream as I pull them backwards through it because it's really hard to hold that space in a really culturally grounded way. But for me, the thing that I do now um, when I do work at universities is I go, how can I make this reflect the way my community does things? And that is not one person saying this is how we do it, which a lot of universities love to have a really powerful Aboriginal person at the helm and everyone goes to them and they go yes or no. Um, for me, it's I really try and democratise everything I'm doing and I try and really make sure that it reflects the way I would do things in my community and not get in trouble. Um, and so it, it's really hard to do, but it is possible. And I think the more that we can kind of um, hold on to our ways of doing in these really, really strange structures that are tertiary education, um, the, the more empowered you'll end up being and it's, it's a hard fight, but it's really well. Maybe we'll do that again. It's how I make mistakes all the time as well, all of us do, but um, the most important thing is like having heaps of mob around you because it just, you know, you just know that you're on the right track then and um, at Melbourne Uni, there's some really great um, black academics there now who, yeah, and um, Maddie who got up and asked the question about TikTok um, is one of my favourite Aboriginal sisters who just happens to work at Melbourne Uni now and, and I've left there but I know it's in a good place when people like her are coming through and it's just so hard being the only one quite often in your whole faculty because everyone thinks that you're a cultural oracle as well. Yeah, and I wish they had to throw a coin at me every time they asked a question. I'd be jingling around by morning tea. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a hard space to be in, but um, you just have to keep just making those little bits of progress, I guess, which I'm sure, you know, you're doing. But thinking about, would my community be happy with how I'm doing this and then pushing back if they wouldn't? And a, a final addition, uh, and you kind of touched on this a little bit in uh, your question is representation. Especially for young kids as well. Like when I was growing up and I wanted to be a scientist, I didn't see anyone like me. Uh, in, in the astrophysics field, I saw Brian Cox, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Neil deGrasse Tyson, all great communicators, all great scientists, but they didn't, they weren't like me. Uh, that didn't bother me because I was a stubborn young child and I was going to do science and no one was going to stop me from doing that. But that is a big challenge for a lot of uh, young mob, especially when uh, they're told, no, you can't do science. Show that and help make those opportunities for them to take. Well, thanks for your advice. It was really um, great having the conversation with you. And we could yarn about this forever, actually. And um, I mean, we can after if you want, but like, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> So uh, I acknowledge that I've kept you all hostage over time, I'm sure, because when I started this, it was 7.22. So I know that it's not 7.22 anymore. 
Uh, but I wanted to, once again, thank you all for coming out. It's been an excellent experience for me. Once again, I've already learnt more things from all three of you, from people who've asked questions. I hope that you found something that you can take away from this experience. Uh, and honestly, just by coming out here tonight is a really good show of faith that your hearts are in the right places and you're willing to learn and engage. So thank you all and have a good night. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.